transmission. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hey, good morning, y'all. Welcome to The Valley Labor Report. My name is Adam Keller, and this is Shop Talk, our Thursday morning episode we're producing every week with a focus on labor education, history, and training. It's Thursday, November 2nd, and we're broadcasting from Spice Radio Studio in the heart of the Tennessee Valley in Huntsville, Alabama. Every episode is live streamed on YouTube and Facebook and is released on your favorite podcasting platform in the coming days. Today on the show, we're talking November labor history. Before we get into that, I want to take a moment to thank our first sponsor for Shop Talk. At the Valley Labor Report, we are big fans of Labor Notes. Labor Notes is a media and organizing project that since 1979 has been the voice of union activists who want to put the movement back in the labor movement. Through their magazine, website, books, conferences, and workshops, Labor Notes promotes organizing, aggressive strategies to fight concessions, alliances with worker centers, and unions that are run by their members. Labor Notes is also a network of rank-and-file members, local union leaders, and labor activists who know the labor movement is worth fighting for. They encourage connections between workers in different unions, worker centers, communities, industries, and countries to strengthen the movement from the bottom up. With 40 years of movement building behind them, Labor Notes exists as a resource for leaders and union members who want to chart a new course for the labor movement. At the Valley Labor Report, we are proud subscribers and supporters, and we encourage our listeners to do the same. Go to labornotes.org to find out more. All right, y'all. So good morning again. Thank you for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Uh, We have a pre-taped episode this week. Do apologize for that, but uh, that was just the schedule of the week. So it is the first episode of the month, and as I typically do, we're going to take a look at some of the anniversaries in labor history and the long fight for justice. I compiled this information primarily from a few different sources. Um, I use the Planning to Change the World, a plan book for social justice educators. Also used Zen Education Project. Uh, it's a great resource. Check out their This Day in History post, uh, as well as their, the section on their website for this day in history, and also use the Labor Tribune of St. Louis and Southern Illinois at labortribune.com. Very helpful resource. So I won't pretend this is an exhaustive list of working class history anniversaries in November, but we'll mention quite a few interesting and important events in the history of the South, our labor movement, and our working class including quite a few working-class martyrs as well as milestones in the civil rights struggle. And while obviously I'm particularly interested in Alabama and our neighbors, I'll mention quite a few interesting events from outside the South today. And last note I should make is that 
when I do these episodes, I always run across words and names that I struggle to pronounce, and uh, the old Mississippi redneck comes out in me. So I do apologize for any mispronunciations. With that out of the way, let's get started on November 1st, which is the first day of National American Indian Heritage Month, which recognizes the significant contributions of Native Americans. November 1st, 1835, in the nation's first general strike for a 10-hour day, 300 armed Irish longshoremen marched through the streets of Philadelphia, calling on other workers to join them. Some 20,000 did, from clerks to bricklayers to city employees and other occupations. The city announced a 10-hour workday within the week. Private employers followed suit three weeks later. Big win. November 1, 1890, Mississippi adopted a state constitution with poll tax and literacy tests to roll back the gains of the Reconstruction era. In 1918, the Malbone Tunnel disaster in New York City. Inexperienced scab motorman crashes five-car train during a strike, killing 97 and injuring 255. Finally, on November 1, 1979, the UAW begins what was to become a successful 172-day strike against International Harvester. The union turned back company demands for weakened work rules and mandatory overtime. On November 2, 1909, police arrested 150 in an IWW free speech fight in Spokane, Washington. On November 2, 1920, labor leader Eugene V. Debs received nearly one million votes in the U.S. presidential election on the Socialist Party ticket while in prison. He was serving a 10-year sentence for his speech in Canton, Ohio, protesting World War I. For giving this speech, he was arrested and convicted in federal court under the Espionage Act of 1917. He was his own attorney. His appeal to the jury and his statement to the court before sentencing are regarded as two of the great classic statements ever made in a court of law. Here is an excerpt from his Canton, Ohio speech. Quote, and here let me emphasize the fact, and it cannot be repeated too often, that the working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war, and they alone make peace. On this same day in 1920, on Election Day, in response to an attempt by African Americans to exercise their legal and democratic right to vote, at least 50 African Americans were murdered in a brutal massacre in Florida on November 2nd, 1920. On November 3rd, 1874, Robert Smalls was elected to Congress as a representative from South Carolina. Born into slavery in 1839, Smalls freed himself and his family during the Civil War when he absconded with a Confederate warship in Charleston Harbor and sailed it past enemy ships and fortifications to reach the Union blockade. After becoming the first African-American to captain a vessel in the U.S. Navy, Smalls entered local politics and helped establish schools and social services for freed people in his hometown of Beaufort, South Carolina. He would serve five terms in the U.S. House of Representatives. 
On the same day, November 3rd, 1874, deadly election riots took place in Barber County, Alabama. The White League, which was a paramilitary group affiliated with the Democratic Party at the time, attacked African-American voters at the polls in Eufaula and Spring Hill. Seven African-Americans were killed and 70 others wounded. More than 1,000 African-Americans were driven away from the polls due to the violence of the white supremacist group. Republican politicians and officials were thrown out of office. The League didn't count the votes cast for Republican candidates, and the Democrats were declared as winners of the 1874 elections. Similar events took place in Georgia, Mississippi, North Carolina, and South Carolina. These riots, state-sanctioned violence, voter suppression, and Democratic Party-controlled government signaled an end to the Reconstruction era. Less than 10 years later, the Danville riot occurred on November 3, 1883. White supremacists resented the biracial Readjuster Party, which controlled the city council seats in the majority African-American city of Danville, Virginia at the time. An attack by white supremacists left four black and one white man dead. In the aftermath, armed white men patrolled the streets of the town, preventing most African-Americans from voting and allowing the Democratic Party to regain political power in the town. Also on November 3rd, but in 1970, Salvador Allende became president of Chile, despite attempts by the United States government to prevent his election. Allende immediately began to nationalize large-scale industries, including notably U.S. copper mining and banking. He expanded access to health care and education, offered free milk for children, re redistributed large land holdings, raised the minimum wage, supported public works projects and public arts, and promoted widespread voter participation. And for all of that, within three years, the CIA funded a coup that led to Allende's death and the brutal dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet. Two years later, November 3, 1972, protesters from the Trail of Broken Treaties Caravan occupied the Bureau of Indian Affairs offices in Washington, D.C. for six days. On November 3, 1979, five people were killed when the Ku Klux Klan and Nazis fired on an anti-Klan rally in Greensboro, North Carolina. The police, who had been warned of the potential for trouble, were suspiciously absent at the time of the attack. The Greensboro Truth and Reconciliation Com Commission was formed in 2004 to investigate the incident known as the Greensboro Massacre. And if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that, uh, there is a great article on Teen Vogue, actually. Um, and I also recommend checking out the previous episode of Shop Talk where I interviewed Ben Wilkins, uh, who wrote an excellent book highlighting the writings of Anne Braden who was an activist very much involved uh, in supporting those impacted at the Greensboro Massacre. Finally, on November 3rd, in 1986, it was reported that the U.S. government had been secretly selling arms to Iran in a hostage release deal. In addition to violating the U.S. arms embargo against Iran, the arms sales contradicted President Reagan's vow to, quote, never to negotiate with terrorists. Several weeks later, on November 25th, the additional layer of the story was revealed 
The proceeds from the arms sales were used to wage a war against the democratically elected government of Nicaragua by funding the Contras, which was a right-wing paramilitary group. The scandal is popularly known as the Iran-Contra Affair. November 4, 1996, after a struggle lasting more than two years, 6,000 steelworkers, members at Bridgestone Firestone, won a settlement in which strikers displaced by scabs got their original jobs back. The fight started when management demanded that the workers accept 12-hour shifts. November 5, 1855, Eugene V. Debs, the labor leader, socialist, three-time candidate for president, and first president of the American Railway Union was born on this date. Also November 5th, but 1867, delegates gathered in Montgomery, Alabama to draft a new state constitution during Reconstruction. Prior to the Reconstruction era, no Southern state had a state-financed public education system, even for whites. Alabama's new constitution established a centralized board of education and mandated that schools receive 20% of state revenue. By 1871, nearly 55,000 African-American and 87,000 white children were attending public schools. One of the delegates to the convention was James Rapier, who promoted an alliance between freed people and poor whites. The advances from the Constitution ended, in Alabama and elsewhere, with the brutal attacks on Reconstruction and the rewrite of the state constitution in 1875. And our Alabama listeners likely know that ultimately we would end up with the racist 1901 Constitution meant to consolidate power in the hands of wealthy, powerful white interests. Sticking with November 5th, but moving forward to 1916, Everett Washington Massacre. At least seven Wobblies were killed, 50 wounded, and many more missing. Also on this date in 2007, some 12,000 television and movie writers began what was to become a three-month strike against producers over demands for an increase in pay for movies and television shows released on DVD and for a bigger share of the revenue from work delivered over the Internet. And of course, the writers just resolved their strike recently, uh, facing many of the same issues, but now with you know newer technology. And of course, we send our solidarity to the SAG-AFTRA members who are still on this strike. On November 6, 1922, a coal mine explosion in Spangler, Pennsylvania killed 79. The mine had been raided gaseous in 1918, but, the insistence, but at the insistence of new operators, it was rated as non-gaseous even though miners had been burned by gas on at least four occasions. Also, November 6, 1965, five men in New York City burned their draft cards in solidarity with David Miller, a Catholic pacifist who was one of the first to publicly burn his draft card and was arrested for it. On November 7, 1837, minister, journalist, newspaper editor, and abolitionist Elijah Parrish Lovejoy was murdered by a pro-slavery mob in Illinois. On November 7, 1841, Madison, Washington, and 18 other enslaved people aboard the Creole rebelled, overwhelming the crew and killing John R. Hewell, who was one of the slave traders. They were among 135 enslaved people being transported from Richmond to New Orleans at the time. 
20 years later, November 7, 1861, the Union Army occupied the Sea Islands off the coast of South Carolina, freeing approximately 10,000 people who had been enslaved. White inhabitants fled, leaving their plantations to the formerly enslaved population who began attempting to create their own economic and political institutions, thus ushering in a rehearsal for Reconstruction. November 7, 1917, some 1,300 building trades workers in eastern Massachusetts participate in a general strike on all military work in the area to protest the use of the open shop, which, of course, is a work site in which union membership is not required as a condition of employment, while non-union members still get the benefits of the union contract. The strike held on for a week in the face of threats from the U.S. War Department. On November 7, 1959, President Eisenhower's use of the Taft-Hartley Act was upheld by the Supreme Court, breaking a 116-day steel strike. And finally, on November 7, 1985, U.S. District Court Judge H. Lee Sorokin handed down his decision to free Reuben Hurricane Carter, stating, quote, the extensive record clearly demonstrates that the petitioner's convictions were predicated upon an appeal to racism rather than reason and concealment rather than disclosure. The world-class boxer turned wrongfully accused prisoner, turned advocate for the rights of the unjustly incarcerated, succumbed to cancer a few years ago, but his memory and work will endure as long as there are people outside and inside the prisons of the world fighting for justice. And of course, his tragic tale will continue to live on in the classic Bob Dylan song. On November 8th, 30,000 factory workers and dock workers staged the 1892 New Orleans General Strike, demanding union recognition, closed shops, wage increases, and more. They were joined by non-industrial labor laborers such as musicians, clothing workers, clerks, utility workers, streetcar drivers, and printers. Most importantly, African-American and white workers united despite active attempts to divide the workers on racial lines. On November 8, 1933, President Franklin D. Roosevelt announced plans for the Civil Works Administration to create 4 million additional jobs for the Depression-era unemployed. The workers ultimately laid 12 million feet of sewer pipe, and built or made substantial improvements to 255,000 miles of roads, 40,000 schools, 3,700 playgrounds, and nearly 1,000 airports, not to mention a quarter million outhouses still badly needed in rural America. November 9, 1935, the creation of the Committee for Industrial Organizations announced by eight unions affiliated with the American Federation of Labor. In 1938, they formally broke with the AFL and became the Congress of Industrial Organizations. November 9, 1938, violent anti-Jewish demonstrations in Germany and Austria, in which hundreds of synagogues were destroyed, 7,500 Jewish-owned businesses, homes, and schools were plundered, 91 Jews were murdered, and 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and sent to concentration camps. Finally, November 9, 1952, Philip Murray, first president of the United Steelworkers Organizing Committee, first president of the United Steelworkers of America, and president of the Congress of Industrial Organizations for 12 years following the retirement of John L. Lewis, 
died at the age of 66. On November 10, 1898, white supremacists murdered African Americans in Wilmington, North Carolina, and deposed the elected and integrated Reconstruction era government in a coup d'etat. 1933, November 10th, sit-down strike began at Austin, Minnesota Hormel plant with the help of a wobbly organizer, leading to the creation of the Independent Union of All Workers. Labor historians believe this may have been the first sit-down strike of the 1930s. Workers held the plant for three days, demanding a wage increase, some 400 men crashed through the plant entrance and chased out non-union workers. One group rushed through the doors of a conference room where Jay Hormel and five company executives were meeting and declared, quote, we're taking possession, so move out. Within four days, the company agreed to binding arbitration. On November 10, 1995, despite international calls for clemency, playwright Ken Saro Wiwa and eight of his colleagues were executed by the Nigerian military government for campaigning against the devastation of their homeland in the Niger Delta by oil companies, in particular Shell. This is the price of fossil fuels. November 11, 1887, the Haymarket martyrs were hanged and convicted in the bombing deaths of eight police during a Chicago labor rally. November 11, 1919, a confrontation between American legionnaires and Wobblies during an Armistice Day parade in Washington resulted in six deaths. One Wobbly reportedly was beaten, his teeth bashed in with a rifle butt, and hanged. Local officials listed his death as a suicide. And of course, November 11th is Veterans Day, previously called Armistice Day, originally intended to mark the end of the First World War, but now a day to celebrate all those who have served in the U.S. Armed Forces. November 12, 1954, Ellis Island in New York closed after serving as the gateway for 12 million immigrants from 1892 to 1924. From 1924 to 1954, it was mostly used as a detention and deportation center for undocumented immigrants. After 10 years of organizing and protesting the building of the Orme Dam on November 12, 1981, the Fort McDowell Yavapai Nation of Arizona won the struggle when Interior Secretary James Watt announced the Orme Dam would not be built. And finally, on November 12, 1991, U.S.-trained and equipped Indonesian troops fired on a peaceful memorial procession in East Timor, killing more than 270. Indonesian troops went on killing for days. This attack was not the first, nor the largest. However, it was the first to be witnessed and documented by foreign journalists and resulted in an international outcry against the brutality of the American-backed Indonesian occupation and demands for a free East Timor. November 13, 1909, a total of 259 miners, boys and men, died in the underground Cherry Mine fire. As a result of the disaster, Illinois established stricter safety regulations, and in 1911, the basis for the state's Worker Compensation Act was passed. 
On November 13, 1953, during the height of the McCarthy era, Robin Hood and his band of merry outlaws made headlines. Mrs. Thomas J. White of the Indiana Textbook Commission called for a ban of Robin Hood in all school books for promoting communism because he stole from the rich to give to the poor. As a result, students banded together in protest and formed the Green Feather Movement to fight back against censorship on campus, a radical act considering the political climate of the time. Ten students from Southwest Texas State University, now known as Texas State University, were suspended and their course credits were erased for participation in a peaceful anti-war protest on their campus on November 13, 1969. They appealed their case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which led the lower court's rulings upholding their suspension stand without rendering a decision on them. The San Marcos 10 lost all credits earned during the 1969-70 school year, and their official transcripts read, quote, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled for the administration and all credit is denied. November 13, 1974, Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union activist Karen Silkwood was killed in a suspicious car crash on her way to deliver documents to a newspaper reporter during a safety investigation of her Care McGee plutonium processing plant in Oklahoma. November 14, 1903, the Women's Trade Union League was founded in Boston. 1938, the National Federation of Telephone Workers, later to become the Communication Workers of America, was founded in New Orleans. In Gomillion v. Lightfoot, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on November 14, 1960, that Tuskegee City officials had redrawn the city's boundaries unconstitutionally to ensure the election of white candidates in the city's political races. Tuskegee's white citizens were trying to change the city's boundaries to head off the rise in African Americans registering to vote after World War II. November 14, 1978, Jimmy Carter-era OSHA publishes standards reducing permissible exposure of lead, protecting 835,000 workers from damage to nervous, urinary, and reproductive systems. November 15, the Slave Revolt of 1842, when dozens of enslaved black people in Weber's Falls, Oklahoma, fought back and briefly escaped from their Cherokee overseers, was the largest rebellion of enslaved people in Indian Territory history. November 15, 1881, the founding convention of the Federation of Trades and Labor Unions is held in Pittsburgh. It urges enactment of employer liability, compulsory education, uniform apprenticeship, and child and convict labor laws. Five years later, it changed its name to the American Federation of Labor. On November 15, 1917, about 20 women were subjected to beatings and tortures at the Akakon Workhouse in a prison in Virginia in what became known as the Night of Terror. The tortured prisoners included activists Dorothy Day and Lucy Burns, some were left for dead after the beatings. They had been arrested for peacefully picketing for universal suffrage in front of the White House. Finally, November 15, 1969, the second anti-war moratorium occurred, with over 500,000 marching in Washington, D.C., and demonstrations throughout the country and the world. 
November 16, 1927, a county judge in Pennsylvania granted an injunction requested by the Clearfield Bituminous Coal Company forbidding strikers from speaking to strike breakers, posting signs declaring a strike is in progress, or even singing hymns. Union leaders term the injunction drastic. Uh, I would say that's an understatement. Uh, very much reminiscent of some of the very extreme injunctions we've seen even right here in Alabama targeting striking workers. November 16, 1982, the National Football League Players Association ended a 57-day strike that shortened the season to nine games. The players wanted a higher share of gross team revenues but failed to win it until many years later. On November 16, 1989, six Jesuit scholars and priests, their housekeeper, and their daughter were murdered by the U.S.-backed, trained, and equipped military in El Salvador. The priests were internationally recognized scholars who wrote and spoke extensively about the need for peace and the root causes of the war in El Salvador. They were among the 75,000 people killed during this period. November 17th is International Students' Day, an international observance and celebration of student community, multiculturalism, and inclusivity. November 17, 1947, with many U.S. political leaders gripped by fear of communism and questioning citizen loyalties in the years following World War II, the Screen Actors Guild voted to force its officers to take a, quote, non-communist pledge. A few days earlier, the Hollywood 10 had been called before the House American on Un-American Activities. The House Committee on Un-American Activities, excuse me. The Albany Movement was formed on November 17, 1961, when, led by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, various civil rights organizations came together to challenge segregation and work for voting rights. On November 18, 1909, President William Howard Taft sent U.S. warships to take position against the elected government of Nicaraguan President Jose Santos Zelaya. Taft's administration and Roosevelt's before his had close relations with U.S. corporations operating in Nicaragua. These corporations were not pleased with how Zelaya defended the economic interest of his country and the region from exploitation by U.S. businesses. The U.S. justified the intervention by claiming to protect U.S. lives and property. This intervention led to the end of Zelaya's rule and the beginning of U.S. occupation. On November 19... On November 19, 1915, the state of Utah executed Joe Hill, the labor organizer, songwriter, and member of the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW. Joe Hill became famous around the world after a Utah, Utah court convicted him of murder. Even before the international campaign to have his conviction reversed, Joe Hill was well known on picket lines and at workers' rallies as the author of popular labor songs, and as an IWW agitator. Thanks in large part to his songs and to his stirring, well-publicized call to his fellow workers on the eve of his execution, Don't Waste Time Mourning, Organize, Hill became and he has remained the best-known IWW martyr and labor folk hero. Finally, November 19, 1981, the National Writers' Union is founded, representing freelance and contract writers and others in the trade. In 1992, it was to merge into and become a local of the United Auto Workers.
November 20th is the Transgender Day of Remembrance, also known as the International Transgender Day of Remembrance, which has been observed annually on November 20th as a day to memorialize those who have been murdered as a result of transphobia. November 20th, 1816, the first use of the term scab by the Albany T Typographical Society. November 20th, 1835, the New York Committee of Vigil Vigilance founded uh, and radical abolitionists organized to liberate kidnapped black New Yorkers and fight racist police violence in the decades after New York abolished slavery. November 20th, 1968, a total of 78 miners are killed at an explosion at the Consolidated Coal Company's number no. 9 mine in Farmington, West Virginia. And finally, on November 20th, 1969, the Alcatraz occupation. Native Americans took over and held Alcatraz Island as Indian land during the Alcatraz occupation. In 2008, the Great Recession hit its high gear when the stock market fall, fell to its lowest level since 1997. Adding to the mess, a burst housing bubble, and total incompetence and greed, some of it criminal, on the part of the nation's largest banks and Wall Street investment firms. Officially, the recession lasted from December 2007 to June 2009, but unemployment remained high for much longer, and the so-called recovery was unequal, to put it mildly. November 21, 1842, a Boston judge stopped the extradition of George Latimer, who had escaped enslavement in Virginia, and allowed him to raise funds for his own manumission. In 1927, six miners striking for better working conditions under the IWW banner were killed and many more wounded in the Columbine massacre at Lafayette, Colorado. Out of this struggle, Colorado coal miners gained lasting union contracts. November 21, 1927, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the case of nine-year-old Chinese-American Martha Loom, who was removed from the Rosedale Consolidated School in Bolivar County, Mississippi, solely because she was of Chinese descent. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that states' rights in Plessy v. Ferguson applied to Asian-American students, or as the court said, students of the, quote, yellow race. November 22, 1909, the uprising of the 20,000. Some 20,000 female garment workers went on strike in New York. A judge told the arrested pickets, you are on strike against God. The walkout, believed to be the first major successful strike by female workers in American history, ended the following February with union contracts bringing better pay and working conditions. November 22, 1919, the district president of the American Federation of Labor and other white men were shot and killed in Bogalusa, Louisiana, as they attempted to assist an African-American organizer working to unionize African-American workers at the Great Southern Lumber Company. Agents of the Great Southern Lumber, Lumber Company formed a gang to threaten African-American labor organizer Sol Dacus. He was trying to form a union for black laborers at the sawmill under very dangerous conditions. On November 21st, company gunmen and members of a white supremacist organization showed up at the organizer's home. He and his family survived the shootout that evening, but the next day on November 22nd, 
He bravely walked through town, accompanied by white supporters and allies in the labor movement. Determined to undermine any efforts at interracial solidarity, the Great Southern Lumber Company gang murdered four of those white allies, including the American Federation of Labor District representative. Dacus and his family were able to escape to New Orleans. The Bugalusa Massacre is an example of the violence interracial labor organizing experienced from racist anti-labor forces in the early 20th century. November 23rd, 1170 B.C. History's first recorded strike by Egyptians working on public's work, public works projects for King Ramses III in the Valley of the Kings. They were protesting having gone 20 days without pay, which was portions of grain, and they put down their tools. Supposedly, they were so terrified by the strike that the authorities gave in and raised wages. Uh, and there's some dispute about exactly what day this really happened, uh, but we're going to go with November 23rd. On November 23, 1887, the Louisiana militia, aided by bands of prominent white citizens, shot and killed 30 to 60 unarmed black striking sugar workers in what became known as the Thibodeau Massacre. Black Louisiana sugarcane workers, in cooperation with the racially integrated Knights of Labor, had gone on strike at the beginning of November in 1887 over their meager pay issued in scrip, not cash. The script was redeemable only at the company store where excessive prices were charged. This was part of the violent end to the Reconstruction era of the United States. It was also a devastating attack on organized labor. In 1903, troops were dispatched to Cripple Creek, Colorado to control protests by striking coal miners. And in 1935, mine workers president John L. Lewis walked away from the American Federation of Labor to lead the newly formed Committee for Industrial Organization. The CIO and the unions created under its banner organized six million industrial workers over the following decade. On November 24, 1947, Congress voted to hold the Hollywood Tent in contempt. The following day, the Motion Picture Association of America announced that the Hollywood Ten directors, producers, and writers who had refused to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee would be fired or suspended. This censorship impacted popular culture for years to come, as noted by screenwriter Alan Rifkin in Jewish Currents. Quote, movies of the 1950s did not display any evidence of the populist spirit which infused some of the more notable 30s and 40s films. On the contrary, studi studios complacently turned out hundreds of movies which debased women, ignored blacks and other minorities, and exalted war and imperialism. November 25, 1883, some 10,000 New Orleans workers, black and white, participate in a solidarity parade of unions comprising the Central Trades and Labor Assembly. The parade was so successful it was repeated the following two years. In 1946, teachers go on strike in St. Paul, Minnesota, thought to be the first organized walkout by teachers in the country. The month-long Strike for Better Schools, involving some 1,100 teachers and principals, led to a number of reforms in the way schools were administered and operated. November 25th is officially United Nations-designated International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, 
and is celebrated annually in honor of three sisters who were brutally murdered for their resistance to the dictatorship of Rafael Trujillo in the Dominican Republic. On November 26, 1912, Joseph James Etter, Arturo Giovanetti, and Joseph Caruso were acquitted after one of the most important labor trials of the 20th century. During the 1912 Lawrence textile strike, they had been arrested for the murder of striker Anna Lapuzzo, even though witnesses testified without contradiction that Etter and Giovanetti were miles away while Caruso was at home at the time of the killing. Lopizo, a bystander when police and strikers were scuffling on January 29, 1912, was struck in the chest by a bullet and died. To this day, it is not known whether the bullet was fired by strikers or the police. The three political prisoners and defendants were kept in metal cages throughout the trial in the courtroom. 15,000 Lawrence workers went on a one-day strike on September 30, 1912 to demand that the three be released. Swedish and French workers proposed a boycott of woolen goods from the United States and a refusal to load ships going to the U.S. And Italian supporters of Giovanetti even rallied in front of the U.S. consulate in Rome. These international campaigns helped lead to their acquittal. On November 27, 1936, some 1,200 workers sit down at Midland Steel, Detroit, forcing recognition of the United Auto Workers. November 28, the first annual convention of the National Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association was held in Nashville, Tennessee from November 28 to December 1, 1898. It was founded with a dual mission to organize mutual aid for its members and to pass federal pension legislation that would compensate every formerly enslaved person. The convention elected Callie House, a formerly enslaved woman from Tennessee, to be assistant secretary of the association. House became its leader for the next 20 years. The Palmer Raids began in November of 1919 and targeted suspected radical leftists, especially anarchists, and deported them from the United States. November 29, 1864, a Colorado cavalry unit acting on orders from Colorado's governor, John Evans, and ignoring a white surrender flag flying just below a U.S. flag, brutally attacked Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes, including Chief Black Kettle, in what became known as the Sand Creek Massacre. Captain Silas Suley, raised in an abolitionist family, ordered his troops not to participate in the attack and testified publicly about the massacre. He was assassinated the very next year. November 29, 1999, National Labor Relations Board ruled that medical interns can unionize and negotiate wages and hours. On November 30, 1854, Fighting Mary Eliza McDowell, also known as the Angel of the Stockyards, was born in Chicago. As a social worker, she helped organize the first women's local of the Amalgamated Meat Cutters Union in 1902. Born on this day in 1924, Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman elected to U.S. Congress. And finally, on November 30, 1999, unionists and activists shut down a World Trade Organization meeting in Seattle, Washington. So that's all I have for you today for Shop Talk. Uh, I do want to mention a couple of events before we wrap. 
Of course, as always, go to labornotes.org slash events to check out what they have going on. Uh, they always have great in-person and virtual trainings. Uh, for example, this month, they have a Secrets of Successful Organizer workshop in Detroit. But for most of our listeners, you probably are more interested in some of the online trainings, uh, such as their Stewards Workshop on Assertive Grievance Handling. They also have a Secrets of a Successful Organizer workshop series online uh, in November and December. Highly, highly recommend that. And finally, I just want to mention that I will be on America's Workforce Radio next week. Looking forward to that, as always. So that's it for Shop Talk. I hope it was worth your time, and I really appreciate everyone listening. If you enjoyed it, definitely share it with your network. Just a reminder that the Valley Labor Report is a working-class media collective dedicated to lifting up labor struggles throughout Alabama and across the South. We bring you Alabama's only union talk radio show every Saturday morning, with the first half from 9.30 to 11 a.m. live on FM radio through WVNN here in the Huntsville listening area. The entire program is online via Facebook, YouTube, and podcast, and portions of the program are replayed on WZZA in the Shoals and WHIV out of New Orleans. We encourage you to check out our website, tvlr.fm, where we publish newsletters and articles, and you can check out our merch. And finally, we rely on donations and sponsorships to put out all of this free content. We appreciate the local unions and organizations that have sponsored ads on our main Saturday show, as well as Labor Notes supporting Shop Talk. Please hit us up if you have ideas for sponsors or if you're interested in your organization becoming a sponsor. And while we love and appreciate our advertisers, our single biggest source of contributions comes from listener donations. You can make a one-time donation or a recurring contribution at tvlr.fm donate. Whether you donate, share, subscribe, or just listen, we appreciate your support and we can't do it without you. And so if you share our mission to grow the Southern labor movement, if you share our belief in the power of solidarity and collective organization, if you want media that is for working people, by working people, please consider becoming a recurring donor at tvlr.fm donate. All power to the workers. Solidarity, y'all.